Well, this is <clears throat> sort of an extension from last week. So if you missed last week, I, I haven't put it up online yet. It's going to be up online. Sorry about that. I've had a few people ask me, and uh, I think people are probably getting mad at me uh, by now that I still haven't gotten that up there. But uh, I had it ready on Monday and then never uploaded it. So it's just sort of sitting there. Uh, I'll get that up. Uh, but I was speaking last week about 21 Father Truths. There are things that are just true about our Heavenly Father, and we can take them to the bank. Most of us struggle with knowing what we can stand on in this life. In fact, when I say you can stand on the promises of God, a lot of people look back at me and they go, well, that's wonderful, but I can't think of one promise. Well, last week I gave you 21, 21 foundational truths about the Father heart of God. This is his nature as revealed in Scripture, and he says, you can trust me that I will be this, 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 I don't know how many 21 would be. But you can take them to the bank. You can stand on them, and you have a legal hold on your God in heaven to say, I can trust that if I move forward, trusting that you will be this way, that you will perform in that fashion. That is critical for your spiritual life. We live in a day and age, even amongst Christianity, where truth is relative. And this is your impression of God, and this is my impression of God. Well, if all you have is an impression of what you think God should be, you cannot stand on it in a time of trial. And when those tests come, you look back and you say, I made a God that I wanted. But who is God? Because God doesn't change. He doesn't shift around based on our likes and dislikes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, whether we like it or not. And who he is is already defined. What did Ben say earlier? That The A.W. Tozer quote? That God, his, what was the statement? Where is Ben? He just disappeared on us. Uh, that his nature, what was it? His, his power is without, his attributes are eternal. Some are limitless. Therefore, that means every one of his attributes is limitless or without end. That's an incredible statement. The same love that moved him to Calvary is the same love that moves him to your assistance and your aid today. Now, you need to realize how extreme that is. Because when you study Calvary and you see the love that moved a God to give up his son and to see him suffer and die and to take the full blow upon himself. And you say, that is an amazing love. Well, that is the same love that moves him and motivates him today in response to your prayers, in response to you, you looking heavenward and saying, God, I need an intercessor. I need a strong man to stand for me today. It's the same love. It is not diminished in one bit since Calvary. And before Calvary, it was the same love that moved him. Everything is the same. And so when you realize that our God is eternal, and these attributes of his are eternal, these 21 father truths are eternal, you can take them, and I use the term take them to the bank. In other words, they are, uh, one of the ways that I've built this statement, and you probably are like, why would I take it to the bank? What, what does that have to do with anything? In other words, it's real world currency. It has value, and it literally, in a, in a transaction sense, in the spiritual matters, it has weight for transaction. If you come in with, like, some Monopoly money into a store, and you're like, uh, I'd like a pack of gum, please, and you stick this little piece of Monopoly money on the counter, it doesn't have any weight for transaction. And they'll look at you like, excuse me? That's the way most of us deal in spiritual matters. We have our Monopoly money. 
It's fake. It's not based on truth and on the promises of God, and we try and transact with it. And the, the spiritual realm looks back at us with a chuckle. It's like, are you serious? Do you actually think that's going to get you anywhere? But when you take the promises of God and you transact with them, it's like no matter what culture you're in, they work. It's like, whoa, that's real gold. I'll take that. In other words, it works. You can take it and apply it in any situation, in any culture. It doesn't matter if you're in Uganda. The same truth is truth. One of the best tests for truth is that it's transferable to any person, in any culture, in any time period. If it's not, it's not truth. Because God's truth is timeless. It doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter what the culture thinks. It is truth and it will work in every generation. That's why we don't allow the word of God to be diminished. Because it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Its promises are unchanging. And when we adapt the word of God to our culture, we lose the timeless and eternal nature of that truth. And we start dealing in monopoly money. And it doesn't work. And we can't figure out why Christianity isn't working. So we blame God. But it's our monopoly money, our ridiculous ideas of who he is because we've recast him in our generation that isn't working. He is still the same. So when we return to him, the reason I started with Father last week is I was saying that the first word in the Hebrew language is Ab. Now you heard me talking to the, the kids about Jesus' special intimate name for his father, Abba. And you'll see these scriptures. Now, there's nothing profound about these scriptures. Most of us, if we've grown up in the church, have heard this. So it's not like I'm trying to teach you something new. I'm more reminding us as a platform for what I'm going to say. And so this is Jesus talking in Mark 14. And he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus was a model. He, now, this is, this is a concept that I've taught on for years, but it never hurts to come back to it and reestablish it. Jesus is the model human. I know he's God. I'm not trying to change theology here. But he came as God and limited himself to behave as a man. And he behaved as a man perfectly to show how a man ought to live. Now, he did it perfectly because he was God, yes. But he set forth a pattern and then said, follow me. And then we say, you're God. That's why you could do it perfectly. How in the world am I supposed to follow you? And he says, give up your body. Let me have it. And I'll do it once again in and through you. He's the one that can do it. I, I always say that the secret to imitating Christ is the impartation of Christ. You receive Christ into your life and let him imitate himself. He's the one that set the pattern in the first place, and then he wants to reestablish that pattern in and through you. The Son of God should become incarnate in and through human flesh every time a Christian is born. That is the pattern of Christianity. It's a stable. We are a pile of junk and Jesus says, I want to be born there. And we're like, you've got to be kidding. Isn't there room somewhere else in a palace for you? No, there's no room in the inn. I need you. And so he comes and he's born in this stable, this smelly old place called us. And then the life of the Son of God emerges through our skin. It's not us. It's us being dead so that Christ could live. That's the secret to Christianity. And Jesus modeled a pattern of relationship towards a father. In fact, it's an intimate relationship. He said, I do nothing but what my father is doing. I speak nothing but what my father is speaking. You could take this and extrapolate this out 
Well, he prayed nothing but what his father was praying. He did nothing in his life but what his father was doing. It was a life of absolute dependence upon a father. And he says, basically, as the father has sent me, so I send you. We do nothing but what is dependent upon Jesus. Our life is consumed in Jesus. The words we speak, we should measure them and say, God, what are you speaking? Because I don't want to use this mouth for any other purpose but you. If you're wanting to speak something, you speak. If, you want, if you're silent right now, I'm silent right now. If you want me to just sit here in my closet and pray today, I stay here. But if you're out and about doing your business, I'm out and about doing your business. We do what God is doing. Now, that sounds a little more complicated than it is because, like, how do you know what to do? Well, you have to become intimate with Jesus Christ to know what to do. So there's a few steps maybe beyond maybe where some of you are at. But the point is that's still the model. That's still the pattern. And we see Jesus crying out to his father and calling him by an intimate name. There's an establishing of an intimate relationship between man and God. And God, and literally, then we see in Romans 8 and we see in Galatians 4, the same exact thing promised. This isn't Eric coming up with an idea. This is what it says. This is what Paul says twice. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are to cry in this new birth. We are literally to say, you're my father? There's something in me that's recognizing the fact that I have a father. And he's a good father. He's not the bad model father that we were talking about up here. The one that, you know, has no time for his kids. The one that is abusive with his children. The one that speaks harshly towards his children. This isn't the way our father is. I gave you 21 truths last week of who this father is. And we have something inside of us that cries out and says, I recognize that. That this is my father. Now when I ask the question, how many sons did God have? Well, he had one, Jesus. But strangely, we are invited in to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. So technically, it's sort of a funny answer. It's like, well, does he have more than one? Well, yes, but not by birth, but by adoption. Adoption is the secret of the kingdom. We are grafted in to the name of Jesus. You know, Leslie and I have walked through adoption twice, and it is an absolutely beautiful spiritual experience. If you want to get to know the Father heart of God at a deeper level, open yourself up for adoption. It's a really powerful means of demonstrating to the human soul how God treats us. You know that when Harper was coming into our family, uh, what was it, two and a half years ago now? I can't can't remember. I shouldn't even try and give dates. Uh, It'll stop me and and my flow will totally get messed up. Okay, she's she's three and uh, there I go with dates again. Uh, She's just over three, three and a couple months old, and we got her at five and a half. So you do the math on that. Uh, but when I remember, I was dealing with a will at the time. I don't like dealing with wills. It seems so morbid in nature. But I was dealing with a will, and I realized that I have not even met this little girl yet. I haven't even met her. And I have given everything to her. Isn't that an incredible thought? I have worked my entire life establishing a foundation economically. I have a platform that has taken years to develop. Now, it's all it's God that built it anyways. But the point is, a lot goes into this. And if anyone just came along to me and said, Eric, I'd like um, you to sign your royalties of all your books over to me. 
It's like, excuse me? Why, why would I just give them to someone? You follow me? In other words, these are things that are precious and valuable within my family. And we don't just lightly throw them around. In other words, we weigh them because our family needs to be taken care of. However, with adoption, you bring someone into your family and they are treated as your own. You know that I've never loved one of my children. I have four. Two adopted, two, two biological. Any less. There is no distinction in my love. And it's a fascinating thing to observe even in my own heart. There is no distinction. A lot of people are afraid of a distinction. So they're like, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable adopting. There is no distinction. I don't think about it even in the remotest bit. So process that at the heavenly level. We may not be Jesus. But for some reason, because of his blood, what he has covered us with and allowed us into the presence of the Most High God to be adopted, and there is no distinction in the Father's heart between us to say, well, I really love Jesus, but you really stink. I don't know why I came up with this agreement. What did I do? What did I sign up for? I got all these adopted kiddos, and they really bug me. That isn't the Father heart of God. You understand that he invites us in and then he loves us as his own. How does he love Jesus? It's revealed in scripture. The deep, deep love that the father has for the son is the same love that he has for you. That is an extraordinary fact. And there is no distinction in the fact that our God grafts us in as a family member and basically says all of the inheritance of heaven, everything that God possesses, what does God possess? An awful lot. Everything is his. Everything. He has purchased it all. It all is, is under his feet. Everything is his. And you're his child. And that means that it's all available to you. Now, don't get selfish about this. It's sort of like, you know, that one statement in heaven. You get to heaven, you take your crown. It's probably a very expensive crown. And you throw it at his feet. He is deserving of everything. Why he's even giving us anything doesn't make any sense to us. And so even when he gives it to us, we give it back to him. We say, use it for your glory, for your glory, for your glory, not to build up me, my kingdom. This is nothing to do with me. So even though he gives us the inheritance of heaven, we give it back to him and say, God, use it for your glory. Why I can't even share in this doesn't even make sense to me. It's bewildering. Think about this. He doesn't just invite us into his presence. That is extraordinary because it is impossible to come into the presence of God unless you are holy and like him. You cannot come into the presence of God unless you are according to the righteous pattern. And righteous means as you ought to be. And I don't know if you've figured this out yet in your humanity, but we are not as we ought to be. So there's only one way in, and that's Jesus Christ, because he clothes us in his righteousness. He is as he ought to be. He is as a man ought to be, and he clothes us in that so we can walk into the very presence of God. But it's not to just come into the presence and be a servant and to just be one guy that cowers in the corner and the booming voice of the king says, servant, come over here and do my bidding. This isn't the relationship that he invites us into. And if it was, it would be plenty. The fact that he would even be allowed into the presence is extraordinary. Where the seraphim and the cherubim praise him, the elders fall down before him, that we could even come in and catch a glimpse of this is mind-boggling. But it's not just as a servant in the corner, trembling before him, and he says, servant, 
Because he could treat us like dirt and it would still be more than we deserve. He could command us around for all of eternity, command us, get over there and do this for me. And we say, absolutely. You gave me life, absolutely. You saved me from death, absolutely. You ask me whatever you want. You ever seen one of those movies where some guy is saved? Like I, I remember, not, not saved, like spiritually saved, but was the Count of Monte Cristo. That one guy, uh, sort of like a piratey type of guy, he's, he's saved, and he dedicates his life to, to that count. I don't even remember his name. I'm doing a terrible job of But hopefully you know what I'm talking about. He dedicates his life. He said, wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever you want, I'll do it. Well, that would be enough for us spiritually, don't you think? He gave up everything for us. We were behind bars, sentenced to eternal death and punishment. This isn't a comfortable one. It's not like our throat is slit and then we're dead. No, we live forever and in torment. Okay, this isn't a good situation. Because in torment, in, in life, you know how difficult life can be? You know that there are numbing agents on this planet known as drugs, alcohol, various things, you know, movies. You can, there's various things that we can numb our pain with. In hell, there is no numbing agent. This is serious stuff that we've been saved from. And we should howl at the top of our lungs to say thank you. Even for the fact that he's somehow taken the penalty upon himself. But he didn't just take the penalty. He, he dealt with the problem of sin. Everything that was deranging our existence, he set us free from it. This is a monstrous good news. And then he calls us into his presence, but not merely as a servant and a slave. And if it was just as a servant and a slave, I say to all of you right now that it would be a great, it would still be good news. In fact, we could still call it great news. And even if all he did was command us around, and he even got frustrated with it, was angry with us, and said, get over here and do my job, you know, for me. I saved you. Even if that's the way he treated us, we're still safe from hell and eternal torment. And we still get to live in the presence of a king. Hey, this is good. But I want you to somehow begin to swallow the fact that that isn't the good news for us. It's actually so much better. This isn't just the removal of a penalty of guilt and condemnation over us. This is an inviting in to the presence of God to be his child. And we do not have a mean father in heaven. God could be anything. I, I, for some reason, we have a tough time. We, we take it for granted, especially if you were raised in the church. You take it for granted that God is good. But I want you to realize there are other religions out there where God is not good. God could be anything. He could, you know, on a whim, just say, you know what, kill him, and then walk out of the room. That's how most dictators work. They have a bad day, kill the guy. You know, he gave him a bad look, or he, the guy coughed in front of him. It's like, hey, did you get some germs on me? Kill the guy. That's how they work. That's Saddam Hussein was exactly like that. God could be like that. Well, the, the strange thing is, he's not. It's a very good thing. He is not like that. In fact, when you begin to study the nature of God, you stand back in awe. And you're like thinking, everything that I would hope he would be, he seems to be. Except for the fact that he's not lenient on the flesh and on self. There are certain things that we do crave. It's like, God, could you allow me to get away with this? Could you be a little more lenient and just turn a blind eye to this and I can live selfishly for my own agenda? No, he loves you too much. Because our God is so loving. Our God cares so much about the state of our soul that he cannot turn a blind eye. He's jealous for your life. 
because he loves you. And he knows as long as you are under the thumb of self and flesh, you are destroying yourself. And he loves you too much to leave you there. He sees chains on your wrist, and he will do whatever it takes to get those manacles off. He will, because he loves you. And I love this about him. And so, let's go through these. I, I just have, basically, I, I called this message fatherly, dot, dot, dot. Fatherly is an adverb, basically saying this is a description of his nature. He is not just a God of affection. Because there's a lot of affection out there in this world. Think about it. There's a lot of love stories. There's a lot of uh, those kings, you know, those movies where they're, they're kings and they happen to have, you know, 30 wives. And uh, they, every girl they see, it's like, oh, could you pick that one for me? Bring her to me. Well, the guy has affection, yes. But it is a disturbed version of it. Our God, I want to clarify, has serious affection. He feels very deeply but it's a fatherly affection. And we could define it in other ways too, but it's a pure affection too. It is a godly affection. So when we say godly, it's like God. And God is pure in everywhere. There's not a speck of flesh in him. He is all spirit. He is love in the most pure sense. And he cares deeply for us the way a father does for his child. And I should say a good father does for his child. Because we have so much distortion to the idea of fatherhood today. Where affection is oftentimes twisted. Because so many girls have been abused, physically abused by their fathers, under the banner of affection. To the point where so many young girls in Christianity today have a tough time allowing an affectionate God to express themselves to him. It's a massive distortion. It's a plant by the enemy. His desire is to keep us out of that intimate fellowship with him. But our God is affectionate. Read this scripture out of 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. You can hear it in John's voice. Do you realize this? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Fatherly protection and provision. Listen to this scripture out of Romans 8. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The same God that was moved to give up his son for you. This is an extraordinary statement. I know we've heard it so many times that for some reason it's almost like we can't hear it anymore. The goodness of God, the greatness of God, the love of God just, some, just bounces off. It's like, oh yeah, oh, that's wonderful. Yay, God. We don't feel it anymore. What Grace was saying is there, is there needs to be a deepening of affection. When she goes over to Uganda and she sees these kids and she interacts with them and she sees the heart of these Ugandans that are walking two miles and lose their spouse and they still radiate with joy. What is it that they have? It should stir us. There should be a change of heart. There needs to be a softening of soul. The American soul is hard. And that includes us. We don't feel at the level we should. And I've said this to you before, but I'll, I'll repeat it again. This is William Booth's request. If he could add any finishing touch to his discipleship of young leaders, he would have them hang over the pit of hell 24 hours and hear the screams well there isn't many of us that would sign up for that 
uh, discipleship course. Could you imagine for Ellerslie here? I'm like, you know what? And the final touch is, you know, and I, I have this agreement with God, and, and, you know, the enemy, you know, can't touch you. You know, I hang you there, and you'll hear all the screams. It'll be very good for you. Okay? You'll thank me afterwards. But the reason is, and I would be scared to death to experience this for a day. However, there's part of me that feels like, I think I want to be signed up. I want to know. I need to feel. I want to be a weeping prophet, not just a prophet. I'm scared of being just a prophet. I want to be a weeping prophet. It's one of my number one prayers. I've been praying for four straight years that God would burden me so deeply that when I speak about the lost, I cry. I weep because I'm feeling it. You can't force that. You'll notice I will never fake a cry because I cannot do it. I would be a terrible actor. Okay, Eric, I need you to cry in this scene. (laughs) I can't do it. I don't know how to. When I cry, it's because God is moving upon me. It's one of those just basic truths to me. Leslie knows that for a fact. Well, I guess when God's moving upon me or I watch, like, uh, Pollyanna, uh, one of the two. (laughs) It's ridiculous. At the end of Pollyanna, everyone else is like, yeah, you know, that was a good movie. I'm like, oh, no. It's uh, it's embarrassing. Uh, But... But our God is moved by the same affection. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And you need to realize that the way he was with his son, and the way he was with Paul, and the way he was with Mary of Bethany, the way he was with his mother, this is the nature of our God towards us. These are not special Christians. I have actually read books that have been released in the past 20 years that describe a differing relationship between God and the people of the Bible and God and us. Dead serious, some of the most influential books in our generation say this, that those were special Christians. And I would like you to know that they were Christians. And if you are a Christian, you have the same privilege that they had to enter into the same promises that God has given because his word is not just for a certain time period. The principle of canon itself is ongoing and unending and undying. There is no diminishment to the flicker of truth. The promises of God are just as sound today as they were then. The question is, who in this generation is willing to believe them? Because that is where the struggle is. Most of us, our struggle is not the fact that God is the same. Our struggle is we don't believe it because we've been told so much. We've, been, we've seen a counterfeit Christianity all around us. We're like, I don't, God doesn't seem very powerful. No offense, uh, God, but it doesn't seem like you're the same God. And it would be an accurate statement about modern Christianity. Modern Christianity is demonstrating something that is contrary to Scripture. It is not living out Scripture. It does not show a triumphant joy that is full and exceeding exceeding joy. How often do you see that in Christianity? I mean, I'm not talking about joy, which is rare. I'm talking about exceeding joy and full of glory. A joy that is full and effervescent. Do you see that? Because that's a mark, a hallmark of the Spirit at work in his church. It's just a basic hallmark. It's not a a bonus hallmark. It's God God says, after 30 years of diligent service and obedience to me, you'll begin to see a flicker of this type of joy. That isn't a bonus thing. You know, if I was giving you things like, you know what? When you really serve God, you can levitate anytime you want. 
that would be considered a very bonus type of thing, okay? I've never levitated in my life, and I have no interest in levitating, okay? In other words, it's not part of Scripture. It's not a promise in Scripture. So if you hear someone barking about something that is outside of Scripture, you have reason to say, I don't know about that. But when you give a basic joy, okay, this isn't some big thing here. We're talking about joy, and I just said, how often do you see it? And most of us have to say, you know what? <laughs> Exceeding joy, I don't think, unless we redefine it, we have not seen it. How about love? A type of love that you can be spat upon, that can be hit in one cheek, and literally it has the stability of soul and actually a genuine, authentic feeling towards the other person to say, I care about you. Turn the other cheek. I care about you. I actually am considering your highest good above my own. So I resist any type of fleshly response, and I will give you what Jesus wants to give you right now. That is extraordinary, and every single one of us in here knows that that does not come with a package of humanity. That is not normal equipment that is supplied to us. That is supernatural enabled. Peace. Peace. An absolute calm of soul that no matter if mountains are crumbling to the sea around you, you are unshaken. Unshaken. You cannot be touched by the enemy. I've given this illustration many times. I'll give it again. That block of resin. The sledgehammer that Satan has. Inside this block of resin is a little creature, a little fossil, which is you. Satan takes out his sledgehammer and hits the block of resin. The block of resin bounces all over the room. It's not doing too well. You know, it's a little dinged up on the outside, but what happened to that little creature within? Nothing. Totally unmoved and unscathed. It is untouchable. That is peace. Triumph over sin. That is a normal promise in Scripture. Not a bonus one, not an extreme one where it's like, well, if you take this scripture and you, you really twist it, you might come to the conclusion that you could have victory. This is just the basics of what Paul gives. The basics. And we don't see it today. We don't believe that God is who he says he is anymore. And this is what it comes back to. We have to say, who are you, God? Really? You are that? I believe it. I believe it, and I will live accordingly. It says of Abraham that he believed that God was able to perform that which he promised. Well, God's promised a lot, and his promises are big. Do you believe he can perform it in this generation? Because if you do, this world will be changed. Your life will be changed. The world around you will feel the ripple effect of your simple faith. You know what you need to be able to believe at this level? Especially when you've been encrusted with modern Christianity? You need to become a child. Hudson and Harper don't struggle with my statements about Jesus Christ. He's big. They believe he's big. They believe he can do whatever they, they want. If Hudson knows that he doesn't want to have a bad dream at night, guess what? He says, Daddy, pray for my dreams so that Jesus will protect him. The big meanie can't affect me. He knows it. And it's a simple trust. The enemy cannot hound his dreams. Why? Because God's a protector. It's that simple. And God doesn't want anything to affect his little son. So he stands up and he says, Daddy, pray for me. He knows the prayers of his father have effect. It's simple, childlike trust that we, we lose in our culture today. It slips away. And we become mature in our thinking to the point where it's like we have to think everything through and analyze it at a deeper level. I remember the, the great statement about Scripture that I heard from Lydia Prince was, 
she began to look at scripture the way a child would and say, what would a child think about that promise or about that statement? And then respond accordingly. Because we don't look at scripture as a child. We say, well, you know what? I've never seen that in my life. We look at it as an adult. But as a child, if it said, you know, do this and this will happen. And then you ask a child, what do you think about that? They'd say, you do this and this will happen. There's no complication to it. It's just simple. It's a promise. We have to become children again. Fatherly perfection. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights whom is no, in whom, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's no shadow of turning. That means he is stable and consistent. There's a shadow. In other words, there's, say a light is shining on something and there's a shadow that comes. Well, if that thing that it's shining upon is turning, the shadow will turn. There is no shadow of turning in him. He is constant and stable. That means you can adhere yourself to his promises and he's not shifting. You shift all the time. He doesn't. That's why you can build your life upon it and that's why he says, I'm a rock. Build, build upon me. Because he doesn't move like sand would. He is stable. And he's perfect. You need to realize this. He never makes a mistake. That's, that's an extraordinary thought. He does not bungle. I've had, I remember having this fear that he was asking for something from me very specifically. I think it had to do with relationships way back when. And I remember I you know, had this little pile of pebbles, and I was scared because if I gave it to God, I had this thought that he was going to drop it down the drain. You know, he'd be busy. I mean, the guy's on the cell phone. He's, he has everything. He has, you know, starvation over in Ethiopia. He has all sorts of issues going on. And I'm going to entrust him with the core of my life. And he's going to be like, uh, you know, okay, th thanks. thanks. And, uh, yeah, what was that again? Uh, what's going on over there? Ooh, oh, oh, what was that? Who, who gave that to me? And I'm like, that was me. Hey, what what'd you do? And he's like, hey, buddy, look, I'm God. I have a lot of things on my plate, okay? Don't hound me about this. I'll get you another pebble, okay? All right, back, back to, who is he? Can we trust this God? Is he going to be distracted? How could he focus on my intimate needs at the same time yours? Okay, now that's just two people. Now multiply that by a few billion. How is he supposed to know every speck in the universe and make sure that no cosmic disaster takes place? Because, I, you know, if, if this is all unstable, how in the world am I supposed to have any confidence? We have complete confidence because he is perfect. He is all-knowing. He is in complete control of everything. And we say, I trust you. I like having a dad like this. This is good news. That's why this is centered to the gospel. It's his nature. The gospel only makes sense when you have a nature to build upon. It's not just a random God that has these whims and he has bad moods and he swings all over the place. He's a God who's stable and you can take it to the bank. It's currency that is transactable. And any time in all of history for the rest of your life, you can take this. It doesn't matter how dark the world grows. It doesn't matter if you end up in East Timor and things don't seem very healthy here. The truth is still the same. In fact, one of the greatest things for us to believe today is that that truth is viable in America. Because America is actually one of the hardest place to places to live it right now. Because we have so much and we have such a dimmed-down Christianity that you feel very strange standing up and saying, I actually believe God to be a lot bigger than this. And people are like, who are you and what do you think you're doing? Don't you realize that no one else around you believes that? Look, can you find a book in modern Christianity that would support that, buddy? Uh, <clears throat> no. 
it's a little unstable feeling. But that truth is stable. And if you stand up, God will back you up. Fatherly promise. I love this scripture. Faithful is he that called you who also will do it. That's good stuff. He's not just calling you, saying, you know what? I need you to buck up and live a better life. Okay, next. Uh, Yeah, I need you to buck up and live a better life. Next, I need you to buck up and live a better life. And then all of us are like, great, I need to live a better life. How in the world am I supposed to do this? So we're trying and we're doing all these things. Then he comes back and checks on us and says, you stink. (laughs) Because that's exactly what would happen, which has happened to many of us multiple times. In other words, we are doing it to ourselves, though, because we're envisioning God to be like this. That he has this command, and he has this calling, and he has this standard, but he is not involved in doing it. This truth is so important to realize. He has not just called you. He's not just said, hey, Eric, get on here. Uh-huh. Go do it. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because the, you know what? It's reasonable to think, how in the world is he supposed to focus on my life, and why should I expect that God will do all my work for me? And God's saying, because you can't do it yourself. It's spiritual work. There's a lot of type of work that you can do that you don't need God for. If we want to pick up these chairs at the end and stack them over there, we could do it. And we could do it without God, without praying, without even acknowledging him. We could make those, and now they might fall over afterwards as a statement from God to say, uh-huh, yeah, you forgot me. It lands on our, our ankle and it twists it and we're like, oh, what did I do? I'm joking about that, by the way. Um, But the point is, we could do this without God. There's plenty of tasks we could do, but the calling that you've received, you cannot do. You cannot live as God has commanded you to live. To live with absolute love as your badge. When anyone sees you, they say, so that's what Jesus is like. In every way, in every word, in everything you do, it's a resemblance of heaven. Try it. You'll fail. Remember Grace's statement earlier? We might as well just apply it here. She said, I couldn't do it. I had to come to the end of myself and realize that. She knew it in theory, but she had to know it really. We all do. We need to come to the end of ourselves and realize we can't do it. The calling we've received, he will do it. That's a promise. You know that you can take this statement right here and build the rest of your life on it? You could basically say to God, you promise that you will do it. You promise that you would do it. Paul told me, you would do it. I stand on that promise, and I am unbending on that promise that you said, not, you haven't just called me to this, God, these impossible standards, but you will do it. You will perform it. You will enable it. Fatherly presence. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. It is so amazing to think that there is not one moment for the rest of your life, if you desire Not one moment for the rest of your life that you need to be removed from the presence of God. That you can live in it. That he actually commands you to abide in his presence. He's not saying, oh great, I got this hanger on here. You know, the guy just won't go away. You ever felt that? Because dad, some of our dads have behaved that way. In other words, you come in around your dad and he's having a meeting. You just want to be around him. He's like, son, I need you to go into the other room. Son, I don't have time for that right now. I need you to go into the other room and play. Son, son, daughter, whatever. It probably calls us by name. But the point is, they don't have time for us. Being in our earthly father's presence is a little more difficult all the time. 
that would be somewhat difficult if I had, you know, four kids around my ankles at all times that I was, I was going about doing the work of the kingdom. It's like, and I'd like you to meet Hudson, Harper, uh, Deborah Dew, and Abby. And here they are. And uh, yes, yes, guys. Oh, you need that too right now? Okay. This is literally what God calls us to. To go around and hang on his ankle all the time, every day, and to participate in his work. What he's doing. Now, I don't know how to model that perfectly to you to show you what it's like. But the point is, we are invited into the presence of God. To live, to move, and to have our being there. At all times, there is never a time where we need to remove ourselves and say, you know what, God's had enough of me for this season. I'm going to live in my own presence for a while. Fall apart, and then I'll come back and get in his presence again. We can be stabilized and strong forever. That's a beautiful statement. Now to finish this up, in hope of eternal life, this is in Titus, so Paul speaking again, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now I've said this the past few weeks, and I'd like to just finish with the statement again because it's apropos. Paul in Hebrews makes a statement of why we have such a great hope in Christ Jesus. And his argument, for some reason, doesn't feel very American. It doesn't sink in very deeply. So we can hear it, but we just sort of move on. We memorize it, and we have it, you know, we can spit it out. But it doesn't ever really change us. Because if we got it, Paul is so moved by it. He brings it up all over the place, too. Here it is again in Titus. And he says, you know that God cannot lie? He says this all the time, and we're like, yeah, I know he can't. It's, isn't that an obvious thing? But he says, hey, guys, did you know that God cannot lie? And not just that he cannot lie, but he's promised you. Which means his promise is good. Because he cannot lie, and he promised. So therefore, you have a legal hold on God. Because he cannot lie. I know I've said this to you before. You're like, here he goes again. But I'm catching it. I'm catching why Paul keeps bringing it up. Is because God cannot lie. And you're like, I know you've said that so many times, Eric. I mean, how many more times are you going to say this? God cannot lie. And if he cannot lie, okay, this is a truth, and he cannot change, which means he's not going to start lying tomorrow. There's no shadow of turning in him. He cannot lie is part of his nature. It's in integral in who he is. He cannot lie, and he's given us a promise. Well, what is that promise? Is that the promise of a mere man named Eric Ludi? I'd like to promise you that God will be faithful to you. You can't take it to the bank, unfortunately. You'd like to, but it was merely the words of Eric Ludi. And it sounded so good because we want to know that God is going to be faithful to us. That if we give our lives to him, he's going to back us up. That he's going to rescue us if, if we cry out to him. But it's just the words of Eric Ludi. But this isn't just the words of Eric Ludi. This is the word of God himself. And he cannot lie. Which means you can hold him to it and say, God... You actually have to rescue me. You, you have to open up your presence and invite me in. And if I simply yield myself to you the way you ask and I believe in you and I approach you and I, I draw near to God, you promise to draw near to me. It's a promise. And we can transact with it. It's real world currency. It is something that we can take and stand on and say, uh, here it is. Put our coins on the table and say, God, in exchange for my belief in this promise, you, you actually say that you're going to give me closeness to you and intimacy with you and life and freedom and joy and peace and love and triumph. This is, thank you for trusting me. 
you will get what you ask for. Ask whatsoever you will in his name, and it will be given. And that whatsoever is in the boundary of promise. Whatever he's promised, you can ask. And you can ask forcefully if necessary. He actually gives the illustration of the neighbor knocking and knocking and knocking, saying, I, there's only one place that has bread. And you have it, neighbor. So I'm going to knock on your door. And if you don't come down right away, I'm going to keep knocking. Kink, 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 kink. And Jesus says, as a pattern, you keep knocking. Because that neighbor is him. He says, you keep knocking, and that neighbor will come. And how much more, if your own neighbor on earth would come, how much quicker would I come to you? It's his nature. He longs to give us what we're asking for if it's in the promised land. If it's in the boundary of promise, it's a given. He is going to do it, and you can stand assured of that because he cannot lie. It's his nature. We build our life upon this nature, and we will not be moved. Let's pray. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Praise you for being a rock. Praise you for who you are. Lord Jesus, may we grasp it at a deeper level. I thank you for beginning to awaken me at a deeper level to this, to see it, to feel more assuredness in it. Lord Jesus, I pray that every single person here would catch it, would see that there is such a great hope in Jesus Christ and that we cannot be moved if we stand on you as a rock. You are sure. You are a sure foundation. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you. May you receive the glory that is due your name. Reveal the Father's nature to us. May we hunger to know it more. Remove the the blandishments and the barnacles of this culture and our own experiences with our earthly fathers that have diminished this vision. May we see you as you are. And may we worship you as you are. And may we live according to the reality of who you are. Bless you, almighty God.